Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Ola Neaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Gail Brunel and Annette Finley Crosswhite about their new book entitled Murder in the Metro, Letizia Turo and the Cagoule in 1930s Friends. Hi Gail and Annette, thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a bit about yourselves. Okay, well I'm Gail. First. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Ola Neaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Gail Brunel and Annette Finley Crosswhite about their new book entitled Murder in the Metro, Letizia Turo and the Cagoule in 1930s Friends. Hi Gail and Annette, thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just kick things off by telling us a bit about yourselves. Okay, well I'm Gail, first of all, and I am something fairly rare, which is a native born and raised Vermonter who left Vermont to go to graduate school at Emory University. That's where I met Annette. And I went there actually to study U.S. history. And I had um, I changed in midstream to become an early modern Europeanist. And I currently teach at California State University in Fullerton. So I've kind of made the tour around the country and... Um, obviously made the tour as well in terms of writing and research topics, given that I started with early modern Europe. And right now I'm working on um, the 1930s and the 1940s. I have long had a great love of mystery novels, and I originally wanted to be a writer. So writing is really my first love. And therefore, I'm really happy to be able to be writing books that bring in readers from outside of academia as well as from within. So I'm the mystery person in a lot of ways of our team. When we wrote Murder in the Metro, Annette and I said that um, we kind of, the book had both sex and violence and we kind of divided it. I got violence and Annette got sex. And with that, I will turn it over to Annette. (laughs) What an introduction. Thank you, Gail. (laughs) Um, you've already, you know, said it all, so that's it. Um, what about you? Just about me. Um, um, I was raised in around Washington, D.C. and ended up going to graduate school in history. I think that's all I ever wanted to study was history. Met Gail there, and at first we hated each other, and then we became the best of friends. So that's a story in and of itself. She was always number one, and I was always number two. And, um, um... I ended up going to London. I was going to work on my PhD in English history and did a lot in that area. And somebody had the gall to publish a book on my dissertation topic. <laughs> and so I ended up jumping on a ferry and heading towards France, where I knew of a topic that, that my dissertation director had kind of bounced off me before and ended up doing that. Um, Like Gail, I was trained as an early modern Europeanist, meaning I I really focused on the 16th century and particularly religious violence was my interest. Um, Any kind of violence was my interest. And um, 
So really pursued working on the French Wars of Religion early in my career and kind of stumbled into the 1930s quite by accident. Lately, because these people that we write about in Murder in the Metro, the Cagoul, also were extremely anti-Semitic, that particular research has led us as well to uh, focusing on anti-Semitism. In the last couple of years, I've been working on the French Shoah. I spent the last couple of summers at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies in Washington at the um, U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And this past year, it's affected all of my teaching. This past year, I actually took students um, to Auschwitz on a course called Paris Auschwitz to look at the experience of the French Holocaust. So um, at the end of the podcast, we'll talk about our two new, two new projects, and one of those is, is certainly tied to the French Holocaust. Yeah, I would just add that I Atlantic World is uh, the re- area of history and the period of history that's really closest to my heart and Besides the projects that I'm doing with Annette, I'm currently working on a book on French Guiana in the 17th century. So I'm really all over the world. Yeah, the point is we're kind of all over the place, and, and we like it that way. It's uh, We're always in search of good stories. Yeah, that's great. So I wanted to ask you, because we haven't, I think before I've just had a set of editors. I have never had a pair of writers who collaborated together. How does that process work? Especially, I know that you live on opposite sides of the country, which is not as big of a problem as it would have been once in the day if you had to send things through Pony Express. But just, what is that process like? Do you really, is it really just as easy as you split the sex and violence and take one topic and then the other? Well, you know, I think that the, the point to begin with is that, that we really are best friends. We've known each other for 30 years. And I always say to people that, Gail probably knows me just as well as my husband does. I mean, she knows how I think. Um, She sat in research seminars with me when I was a student, so she knows how I think. I know how she thinks, and therefore I think that we work well together because we have a friendship. We're not going to hurt each other because the friendship is extremely important. So I'm very careful if I don't agree with what she's doing. I'm very careful with how I word it. I think we've only had a couple of fights about paragraphs or syntax or the length of a sentence. Mm -hmm. We also complement each other in terms of our interest. I'm very much uh, a a fantastic researcher. I think I could find anything, Mm -hmm. and I have a photographic memory, so I never forget names. Gail's not so good in the name department. (laughs) I was lucky if I can remember my close family members' names. (laughs) And yet she is, I'll let her talk about herself, but she's far more interested in the creative crafting of narrative. Um, I'm very much focused on on the discovery process. And, and, and so I think that we complement each other in that way. And yeah, we just divide up the work and we edit each other's stuff over and over again. I think murder in the Metro was written nine times. And by the, you know, our goal was to get one voice. And I don't know with murder in the Metro that that's exactly that, that we exactly achieved that, but we certainly, that was our goal. And I think as writers, we get better and better at, at editing each other's work. Yeah, I would add to that that I think the metaphor of a marriage is is good in that as in a marriage, you have to be willing to make compromises. And as the Buddhists say, lower your ego. You have to be willing to take criticism from the other person or at least suggestions, not compete, 
that's one reason why I think it's also helpful if each of us has our own projects and interests that we're working on, as well as the things that we work on together. And you have to be willing to talk about and discuss what you want to achieve in the book and which aspects of the book each person is going to emphasize. And I do think it worked out well for us precisely because even though we each share in the research and writing, there is a different emphasis because I do have and have long had an interest in writing and these issues of how to craft a narrative arc, how to build dramatic tension and so on. I bring those things in and make Annette sometimes aware of why I've written it this way, why it needs to be done this way, why the story needs to be structured that way. And on the other hand, Annette is very good at saying, well, you're making it up for one thing. <laughs> important issue. You're slipping into making it up, Gail. But also the, that um, where there's areas where we can strengthen the research and so on. And that's especially important because I would add that our goal from the outset in writing this book was to create a crossover book. We spent many hours even before we began the project, talking about our concern with the history profession, that too much is written by academic historians in, as my preceding sentence, the passive voice, and in a language and a kind of jargon that is often not accessible to ordinary readers, even though the topic and the information in the book might be of much broader interest. So we wanted it to be a crossover book, and therefore it's been very helpful to have two people whose emphases are slightly different, because I think that helped us to create a book that was both accessible and at the same time scholarly in its research. And I'm going to add one more thing here. You know, history is a lonely profession, and most historians spend their time in isolation and in archives. And I don't know if this book would have been written if one of us had taken it on by ourselves, because, as you know from reading it, we met so many roadblocks to trying to even get access to the archives that I think having somebody to lean on or having somebody to say, did that just happen? Um made it much more doable, and quite frankly, it made it a lot more fun. So as you mentioned, you guys have been working on this for quite a while. So how did you discover this story, and what kept you going when you hit in your pursuit when you hit different roadblocks and difficulties? Well, um, the story begins like this. We oftentimes shared apartments in France working on separate projects, and I bought a book in the airport, um, Um, called Paris Underworld, Underground, and what's the title of it? Paris Underworld. Anyway, it's a book about the seedier side of Paris, and um, got to to France, and Gail had bought the same book. I don't know if she bought it in the airport. Yeah, in another airport, I suspect. In another airport, and and there was a paragraph in that book, about three paragraphs, actually, on the murder of Leticia Toro, and I said to Gail, I'd just gotten tenured, and I was exhausted, and I literally came to France to sort of emotionally recover from the whole tenure process, and uh, I 
got there and said to her, boy, I wish we could write about something interesting like this. And Gail, who's the bigger personality of the two of us, kind of looked at me and said, you just got tenure, Annette. Why can't we? You know? and, and sort of the light bulb went on and thought, oh, well, that would be fun. Yeah, I, I guess I think that pretty much tells the story. I mean, my view at that point was, frankly, we were both tenured. And there didn't seem to be a lot to lose. And I had, honestly, I should say that from the outset, from the beginning of my academic job, I knew almost immediately that writing strictly academic-oriented books was not going to be sufficient for me. And I started taking courses at night in the various writers' programs in the L.A. Basin. So I was already thinking about how I could move forward with a writing career where, as I said in another one of these interviews, um, somebody more than 11 people and my mother, not my dad, by the way, he refused, but <laughs> 11, more, 11 people and my mother would read you know, my first book. That was basically it, Mom, and I suppose there's some other people, but not a lot. And so my real goal was to, to write a book that my dad would read, you know, who was, a, who was a reader of history. So I immediately smelled a good story in this. And when Annette was interested in going forward and doing it as well, I just thought, since we had so much fun doing things together anyways, let's launch it and see what will happen. Because we were both working on our other academically oriented research anyways. And so it wasn't as if neither of us was going to be promoted eventually or we were going to lose our jobs. So it was like, hey, why not? So we once we started doing it, it was so much fun that I think that alone was addictive. And so I don't know if every historian could collaborate the way we did or would, you know, would really frankly have persisted in uh, in in trying to overcome the obstacles that we faced as we did. But I think Annette is right that, that once we got going with the story, the story itself was very, very compelling and fun. And so we just kept going until we got there. Right. The book, by the way, was called Paris Dream Book. That Paris Dream World. Dream World. And, um, or Dream Book, yeah. And so it, it really led us in that direction. So I want to come back in just a minute to the obstacles you faced, but first, just for people who aren't familiar with the case at all, can you just give us kind of a synopsis of the murder and what happened? Well, essentially what happened was that um, on Pentecost Sunday, was mm-hmm. it? Uh, a young woman. 1937. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 1937. A beautiful young woman in her late 20s goes down into the metro station at Porte de Charenton, which is not far from the Bois de Boulogne, and gets on a metro train, and there are hundreds of people on the quay in the metro station that see her because a thunderstorm had broken out, and a lot of people had gone down into the metro to take shelter from the rain. So there were many witnesses, and she gets on a first-class car, which was quite unusual in that day because it was expensive and we're in the midst of the Great Depression. And she was also dressed in a beautiful green outfit that made her stand out. She gets on, 
There's nobody else that gets on the car. The doors close. The car takes off. A minute later or less, it arrives at the next station, the Porte Dore. The doors open. And some people come into the car. And it's important to note that there's two groups of people, a, a, a group of young women and then a dentist and his girlfriend and another man, a group of three, they get on in either end of the car. And neither of them sees anybody get off the car. And there's a young woman sitting here in her green outfit in on a bench. And it's stuffy in the car. So one of the young women goes up to her and says, Madame, can I open a window? It's stuffy in here. And instead of answering, she slumps over and there's a nine-inch knife in her neck. And... It's considered, therefore, in the realm of literature as a locked room mystery. They have no idea how people got on got on, and then got off the car, how the person stabbed her. So it was fascinating for that aspect alone, and that was what was played up in the Paris Dream Book that we read about the story. So essentially, that's the outset of the story, and I'll let Annette pick it up here to tell the rest. Well, the the woman, Leticia Tarot, just seemed particularly fascinating. Um, what we had originally were newspaper reports, and at first she was portrayed as this lovely um, widow who helped poor children on the streets and, and a, as a, was a diligent factory worker and an all-around good person. And then over the first week of the newspaper coverage of her murder, the journalist really turned against her and they revealed that she, in fact, had had a clandestine marriage and that she was a police informant and she was working in these factories to spy on union organizers and report back to the factory bosses and that she had a a very um in vigorous sex life that involved lots of lovers that she loved to dance in these things called the bow musette which were little dance clubs that the um, lower classes, the working classes really favored at the time and and to me boy that hooked me I just thought that she was such a fascinating woman, and I loved the whole ambiance, the whole milieu of the Bal Musette, um, and, and I really just wanted to know more about her. And the more we researched her for the first couple of years of the project, you know, I really just got into this woman. I would wake up in the middle of the night thinking about her, wondering who she was, and would I ever really be able to understand her? Because, of course, she didn't leave one single piece of writing that we had to go on. Um, and that's why we so needed the police reports to find out anything about her at all beyond just the, the journalism. And that's where the project got very interesting because we knew we had this locked room murder. Um, and Gail, who's fascinated by murder mysteries, really wanted to know the solution to that. And me, who's very interested in popular culture, wanted to know more about her and the world, the kind of Paris underworld that she came from, um, as we began trying to do the research, we just met with roadblock after roadblock after roadblock as trying to get the documents concerning her murder um, became very difficult. And that also meant that we were even more fascinated than that was, you tell us no and we're going to try and do it. (laughs) And I would pick up from there to say that the next thing that became apparent even before 
we got access to the most important archival documents was that the newspaper reports connected this woman's murder to a clandestine terrorist organization called the Kagul, or the Hooded Ones. And that, of course, immediately drew me in. And so we started to read the very scanty literature out there in the historical field, as well as some popular crime material and as much newspaper literature that we could get our hands on about the Kagul. And when we discovered what this organization really was, that it was a clandestine group that was responsible for a number of high-profile murders, the most important of which is probably of the Rosselli brothers, who were Jewish refugees from Mussolini, who were in France both attempting an anti-Mussolini propaganda campaign and involved in fighting against Franco's nationalists in the Spanish Civil War, the, the brothers are killed on a lonely back road in Normandy on their way home from lunch. So essentially, when we began to realize that this group bombed buildings, killed people, had an enormous stockpile of arms all through France when they are ultimately unmasked in late 37 and, and 38 by the interior minister of France, Marc Stormois, essentially that, that group was of great fascination for me, especially when we, it also became apparent that the people who were running this organization were not some kinds of thugs with criminal records, but were in fact people from the French bourgeoisie, usually from very affluent or at least middle-class backgrounds. A lot of their street soldiers were from the working classes, but they themselves were very prominent people, and yet here they are organizing a campaign funded by major French industrialists like Eugène Eugène Schuller of L'Oréal, the Michelin brothers, Renault, to try to overthrow the French government, and that they were doing this not only an imitation of Mussolini, but using funds supplied to them by Count Ciano, who was the son-in-law of Mussolini. So essentially you have all the elements here because you've got an international murder mystery. You've got a fascinating woman who is intrepid and yet at the same time very dodgy in her (laughs) morals and personal relationships, sex on plein air in the Bois de Boulogne, I like that, you know, and you've got this international organization that is a self-proclaimed terrorist group. What more could you ask for? (laughs) Incredibly rich story. And as you mentioned in the book, the Kagul have not really been taken seriously by historians. Is there a reason for that? Is there a lack of documentation, or is it because the sources have been closed and it's been so, so difficult to get access to them? Why, well, why is that? It's a couple of reasons. I mean, when the story broke in 1937, when Marc Stormois, who was part of the Popular Front government of Leon Blum, announced that he had uncovered a coup uh, against the government, the various um, constituencies in France reacted in, in a variety of ways, and most specifically, 
the right-wing papers actually began to denounce that this coup was really anything more than a fantasy of the, the left, of Marx Dormois. They actually ac- accused the left of fabricating uh, this sort of uh, coup in order to bring down the right. And so many powerful people in France and many of the big right-wing papers ultimately denounced the exposure of the Cagoule as something called phantomarks. And they showed there's wonderful political cartoons from the picture where Marx Dormois is running around the various ministries of France exposing the bombs that he himself is planting. And so that's part of the story that you, you had an immediate sort of, oh, this isn't a big deal. And actually the Kagul outfit, which I'm not sure the Kagulards ever really used, but the papers indicated that they wore kind of Ku Klux Klan uniforms. Um, in 38, at fancy dress balls, the, Ku, the, 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 the hooded um, costume was all the rage. So there really was a, a very successful attempt to downplay this particular event. The other reason is that many of these Kagulard um, during the war became Vichy collaborators. They really are responsible, in fact, for bringing Vichy into existence. And so after the war, they absolutely washed their hands of anything that they had to do with before the war or as part of collaboration. Many of these um, right-wing collaborators start the war on the right, and they end up um, eventually by 42 when the Germans invade the southern part of France. They end up then going over to the resistance. So many of these quote-unquote bad guys of the 1930s end the war on the right side as resistance people who get decorated and, and win awards and medals. And so then begins the sore, the, the whole post-war period of Forgetting the amnesia of, of things that happened during the war. And so there really was a concerted attempt to push all this aside, to close the documentation. Francois Mitterrand, who was certainly um, the greatest socialist president of the, the late 20th century, had connections to the Kagul. He never really was a Kagulard, but many of his friends were. He moved in those circles, those elite wealthy circles of the Kagul. And so until his death, all the documentation tied to the Kagul was um, closed. So that's part of the reason. But the historians seem to have believed the right-wing papers. And so um, a story I like to tell is back in the, back in the mid-'90s at a history conference, I tra- tried to raise the issue of the Kagul and was pretty much laughed out of the room. And I'm, I'm just proud to say that that... Um, approach towards the Kagul is is being reconsidered now, being rewritten. They're they're much they're taken much more seriously by historians today than they were in 1995. So I think we've had that impact. Yeah, I think that after the war, many French people, all the way up to De Gaulle, believed that the only way to reconstitute France after this terrible division was through a concerted campaign of amnesia. You have to remember that the main activities of the Kagul coincide almost exactly with the period of the Spanish Civil War as well. Eugène de l'Oncle, the founder of the Kagul, says himself in his own 
little book called Idee et Action, that the Spanish Civil War and the fear that the Spanish Civil War was going to be replicated in France was one of his motivating factors in creating the Cagoule. Now, whether or not he's being disingenuous there, given the fact that his behavior was more likely to provoke a civil war than to stop one, it clearly means that he felt that that would resonate with his listeners. So you have to keep in mind that France is on the brink itself of a civil war. If you look at the Clichy riots, for example, and their impact on France and the size and numbers of people that are involved in this, and this is taking place during that period of the popular front government, you have to realize in 36 and 37, there's a lot of violence, there's deep divisions, there are a lot of people who are attracted to the right, primarily because to them the only alternative is Soviet-style Bolshevism, communism, Essentially, France is, is, is very torn apart. And this is also one reason why France has such difficulty preparing itself adequately for the eventual breakout of war with Germany. There are some other reasons as well, but one is that there are so many internal divisions, dare I say, rather like the politics of our present time, that it is very was very hard for them to focus. So when... World War II ends, I think that for a lot of people, there's an initial purge where the worst of the worst, so to speak, Pierre Laval, for example, Joseph Darnand, who headed the Malice, are executed. Others are imprisoned, Peyton, for example. But there is also a sense that within a couple of years, I mean, this starts very quickly after the war, that we have to bring France together if France is ever going to regain its place as a partner and, in some ways, a competitor with Germany and also, frankly, with the United States. And there's a sense also that that in the Cold War environment that we've got to rein in the communists in France who want to push these things further, these investigations further, because they're really in league with the Soviets. So there's a lot of reasons, therefore, for this to be pushed aside, pushed into obscurity. And the other final thing that I would add, perhaps somewhat incendiary here, is that in my experience, a lot of American historians, not surprisingly, go into French history because they are, well, Francophiles. Mm -hmm. And it's uncomfortable, or has been until the recent decade or so, to look at the dirty linen of the place where you sort of found yourself as an adult, where you with that you love with a deep emotional attachment, which you would need in order to carry you through writing a doctoral dissertation on some aspect of French history in, in the archives. And so I think I sensed at least that for some historians, there was actually an almost emotionally uncomfortable reaction, as well as the scholarly issues surrounding why it was better not to believe that there were that many people in France who were that devoted to 
bringing about a fascist-style regime in France before the war, or, for that matter, collaborating during the war. And I might add just a little note, just to say that Gail and I often say that American historians of French history are more in love with France than the French, and I think it's interesting that our book has been more successful in Britain than in the United States. I mean, we've had a great response from the British reading public. Um, so there, there you have it. <laughs> um, this is a bit of a change in gears, but some of my favorite passages in the book were where you explored the appeal of the case in the French press and set Turio within the context of adventurous heroines like Edith Piaf and Amelia Earhart, through whom women of the reading public could live vicariously. Um, so what was the status of women in Paris then, and how did... How did Turo deviate from that, or how was she different from the the kind of the prevailing norms? And why do you think this partic- this story in particular resonated with the the women public, the female public? That's a that's bailiwick, so I will turn that one to Annette. <laughs> well, I mean, lots of things are going on here. I mean, in in the early part of the twentieth century, you certainly have throughout Europe the influence of women's movements. I mean, certainly the, the British women are given the right to vote um, after World War One, and that doesn't happen in France. But that that's not to say that, that French women aren't, aren't influenced by that experience, what's going on in the United States and Britain. You also have, of course, a literature that's coming out that people are reading and, and exposing intrepid women, exposing women who are often um, sexually ambitious, unlike the, um, the, 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 the more Christian stereotype of, of what a, a good woman and a good wife ought to be. And you also have, at the same time, uh, more opportunities, more economic opportunities that are available to women in the early part of the 20th century, either through factory employment or even working in the various large department stores that um, become part of consumer culture in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So on the one hand, you've got a message coming out to women that you can be more, you can do these things. And on the other hand, on the far right, as you move closer and closer to World War II, you have a literature that's being disseminated focused on the um, natal movement about women being the perfect mother, having lots of children, um, ultimately giving to the patrie what the patrie needs, and that is more French citizens raised in a certain um, particular kind of Catholic way. And so I think that Toro, from our perspective, was kind of bombarded with all of these messages. And so she is very unusual in that she does it. She has a clandestine marriage. And clearly she was in love with her husband. Clearly from the sources we read, we read she was devastated by his loss. But that doesn't stop her from having sex in, in open parks with men that she's met at the dance halls. So she also clearly was sexually ambitious, had a large libido, and, and was willing to use sexuality as a way to enhance her private detective work. I mean, that's a, a, a very interesting moment in, in the 1930s when she's inculcating that sort of ambitious kind of persona. At the same time, we know that she desperately wanted children and, and either couldn't have them or didn't have them. 
Um, so she, she doesn't come out to be the stereotypical wife in any sort of way. And so we don't know what she read. We know that the police report said that her apartment was filled with novels, romance novels, and, and, and that sort of thing. And so all we can do is extrapolate from that that she was a reader and, and that she liked um, the, the idea of romance and she liked the idea of detection. And she was very good, apparently, at following people. So she had... Um, a real sense of her identity in that way as, as someone who could find information and disseminate it to the police. All these things made her very fascinating to us. And I would add there two things. I think that another aspect for me of the fascination with her is that she was an immigrant mm-hmm. uh, from Italy. And that means, and since she came over as a teenager, even though she was raised in a part of Italy where I'm sure that she knew French as well as Italian, she very likely would have been speaking French with an accent. And we know that she took private lessons to try to eliminate that accent. So this is a woman who had ambitions. And I always argued, and this was one of the things that Annette and I, shall we say, debated a lot about in the book, was the issue of the role of class versus the gender in the construction of her personality and in her career. Because it was clear that for her, sexuality was a way for her to work toward a goal. It wasn't simply pleasure. I'm sure that sex with sailors on planned air was for pleasure. But in terms of the kinds of men she slept with, including the very dangerous lover that she took in the Kagul, basically... It was, as well as her clandestine morganatic marriage, I love that word, morganatic marriage with the son of her employers, it was also a way to achieve upward social mobility. And that issue of trying to integrate herself into French life, to become French, changing her name to the name Yolande, which is what she went by a lot, which was clearly to her sounded more French, taking lessons to eliminate her Italian accent, using her attractiveness to find lovers that would allow her to rise in society shows that this is a woman who is not simply acting on the basis of emotion. She's not simply falling in love and being led into a snare. This is a woman who clearly is intelligent and to some extent at least, calculating, and has a goal in mind. And that goal is integration into French society and upward mobility. And gender is therefore a part of that picture, but that is only a part of her strategizing and who she is. And remember, her clear goal was to to enter bourgeois society. Her husband was the son of a factory owner, and even though the parents didn't know about that marriage, it was still a success for her to marry the son of a, of a factory owner. And then her lover, Gabriel Jonté, goodness, he came from the 16th arrondissement in France. He was the son of a doctor. Um, he, he, he was from a, a, a wealthy family that had a, a small chateau in, in Switzerland. So she was also able to um, integrate herself into these arenas 
which meant that she wasn't a typical factory worker of Italian descent by any stretch of the imagination. So as, we, as we've alluded to already, but I want to come out and ask from a slightly different angle, as we've mentioned, there's been a trend toward reevaluating French history, slightly more successful outside of the U.S. maybe, um, in the period before and during the occupation. How in particular do you hope that Murder and Metro will contribute to that reassessment and enhance it? Well, you know, from my perspective, our goal was to have the Kagul taken seriously in all of the literature that was current before we began working. There seemed to be very few historians who really considered this group as a major terrorist group. Joel Blott at the University of Connecticut had done um, several articles on the Kagul and beyond Blatt in the United States, or Blatt, I, I, it, it was just hard to find serious scholarship on the Kagul. So I think we've succeeded in, in having a major university press publish a book that is very much a kind of mini uh, a monograph about the Kagul. And therefore, that leads to an entire reevaluation of the extreme right and these fascist groups. There's always been this um, debate in French history about the extent that fascism really existed in France before the war. Um, and, and so I think that we contribute significantly to, to, to that discussion. And we'll go forward with our future projects. I always say that Kagul is the gift that keeps on giving because our next two books are also tied to uh, the Kagul during World War II. I would add that I never understood how people could not take the Kagul seriously if you read that quote from Leon Blum that we put in the book, where essentially he says straight out that this was a very serious threat to the Third Republic, not just to the Popular Front, not just to him personally, but to the Third Republic. So I guess part of the issue for me was that if you say, and there are historians who make this argument, they failed to achieve their goal. So therefore, we don't have to take them seriously. Okay, that's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it is to say, it certainly was not for want of trying. And what I would point out to people is that the day after the major Kagulard are arrested, not only do the police find enormous caches of weapons in every single arrondissement of Paris, one cache of which alone yields enough weapons to fill a seven-ton military truck, and that when the police are attempting to disarm these weapons on an athletic field outside of Paris, one of the weapons blows up and 11 people are killed as a result. But that morning, word of the arrest had gotten out from Cagoulards who had slipped the net and radioed or telephoned their friends. And people in cities like Toulouse, Lyon, all over France woke up, looked out the window as they went to get their morning milk or paper and saw the streets filled with boxes of grenades and machine guns that people who had been hiding them for the Kagul threw out in the street to try to avoid being arrested in the dragnet. 
Now, think about the impact that would have today. Good morning. There's grenades in the street. I never could understand, given those things, how people could have not seen the cagoule as something very real. And so all I could come back to was this issue that there was an emotional level resistance then and now that I think that we sort of helped. We certainly are not the only people that have been working on this revision, but I think we played a big role in forcibly breaching it, which is why we had a few, shall we say, uncomfortable moments at some academic conferences and in some conversations. Any idea what you're going to be working on next? Um, You start. Okay, we're working on two books that are both related to the Kagul, and each of us has one of them dear and dear to the heart, so I will talk about my baby first. It's called Vengeance, Vichy, and the Assassination of Mark Stormont. The long and short of it is that after the, the, at the point of the armistice, the tables are turned in that now it is the former Cagoulard who gained power either around Pétain at Vichy or in some cases through their association with the Germans in Paris. And one of the first things the Vichy government does is arrest a number of the important figures from the 1930s Third Republic, and especially the Popular Front, one of whom is Marx Dormois. After spending about eight months in various prisons, he is sent to forced residence in a hotel in Montelimar, which, since I have a sweet tooth, I was happy to say is the nougat capital of France. Because <laughs> we went down there and I got to buy bags of nougat. So while um, he was in there, that that hotel, his enemies assemble a team of assassins headed again by a woman, so gender will figure in this book, and they go to Montelimar and they plant a time bomb under his bed and they get on the train and head out of town and the bomb goes off and he is killed. And the book will discuss the assassination itself the rather amazing police investigation that was thorough primarily because in that period in 1941, both the chief inspector investigating it, Charles Chenevier, and his superior at Vichy, Pierre Mondenel, were secretly sympathetic to the resistance. They were not really themselves um, supportive of Vichy. And so Chenevier actually does his job, and there are is an are enormous amount of documents in Paris uh, and elsewhere in Montelimar also about the stages of this investigation and the outcome of the case. And so the book will essentially be in some ways a mini biography of Marc Stormois, whose death has been again ignored by French historians, even though he is the man who uncovers the Kagul, um, and is a stalwart against Vichy. He's one of the 80 French um, assembly, in the French assembly. He's a senator. He's one of the 80 people out of almost 600 who voted against giving powers to Pétain. 
So he's a very important figure whose death has been ignored. And the book, again, will be a crossover. It will be, in some ways, a murder mystery about how this murder is accomplished and how the crime is investigated. It will also, in a lot of ways, tell the story of the first couple years of the war. And since the murder was, again, of course, goes directly back to the Kagul, it is in many ways a sequel to Murder in the Metro. The next book, My Baby, which um, we are writing vengeance right now. Um, The next book is totally researched and ready to be written, but will be the next project after vengeance. is called Betrayal, Bombing Bombing Synagogues on the Streets of Paris, Igniting the French Holocaust or Shoah. And it is about, again, the Kagul who become, during the war, the Mouvement Social et Revolutionnaire, or the MSR, who plant seven bombs, um, in 1941, October of 1941, on Yom Kippur, they bombed seven um, French synagogues in Paris. This story has been totally ignored by historians. It's told in books in anywhere from a sentence to a paragraph to one chapter in one book. And it's told entirely from the German point of view because the Germans supplied the Kagul turned MSR with the explosives to do the bombing. Nothing else is ever pursued. This was a French plot. French men did it, and it's been totally ignored. Our focus in the book is on the Jewish experience. As far as I can tell, no historian has ever even considered how the Jews of Paris reacted to their synagogues being blown up, which we interpret as a very important sign, uh, a warning that the Kagul turned MSR sent out to the French public, a restructuring of the landscape of Paris, trying to get rid of these synagogues. And so we considered the Jewish reaction to this as a a portent just before the deportations from France to Auschwitz began. And also we uh, look at the last chapter is, is a wonderful sort of American story because the synagogues that were closed at the bombings in 41 are reopened by the Americans. And interestingly enough, the head religious figure of the American army in 1944 in France was a Jewish chaplain by the name of Uda Nadish. He opens the synagogues. He begins performing services in the synagogues. And he then comes back to America and leads the Park Avenue Synagogue in New York City for the duration of his career. So it's it's also a wonderful kind of telling of, of America in, at, its, at its height, at that great post-war moment when America and democracy really mean something. Um, and uh, so that will be uh, another telling of the Kagul and MSR and the attempts to um, um, destroy Judaism in France. I've been talking today with Gail Brennell and Annette Finley-Crosswhite about Murder in the Metro, Letizia Thoreau, and the Kagul in 1930s France. I'm Olay Neaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening. <laughs>